It is well, it is well with my soul. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Good morning. Ready to dive in and tackle another prophet? It's the Super Bowl in a couple of weeks, so it's all about tackling, right? So we're going to tackle Micah this morning. We've looked at Amos, we've looked at Hosea, and now uh, we get a chance to meet the prophet Michael, who comes just after them. We don't know a lot about Micah. We know he's from a little country village, a rural village called Moresheth. It's about 25 miles west of Jerusalem. And so Micah is from the south, like Amos is from the south. But unlike Amos and unlike Hosea, Micah's primary audience was Judah in the south. Amos and Hosea went north. Primarily, Micah's ministry is uh, primarily in the south and in Jerusalem. You remember a little bit of history. Let me remind you, 931 B.C., Israel split into north and south. Okay, And then in 722 B.C., about 200 years later, the Assyrians came in and wiped out the north, so only the south remained. And so Micah, whose ministry started just before... Assyria came and wiped out the north, preached straddling that important date. So he started just before Assyria came and continued in the south just after. And like Amos and Hosea, and you know, if, if you've been here the last couple of weeks or even the last three weeks um, and you haven't connected it yet, I think you certainly will today, but let me just tell you what the connection is. And it comes as a surprise to many. I know it came as a surprise to me. You think you have all these minor prophets running around, you got all these major prophets running around, and you think, all right, depending where you look, major or minor prophets, you're going to find all this different stuff. You know, that they all have different things to say. Now, they have different ways of saying things. And they do have special things that are going on in their lives, in their time, and maybe special emphasis and a little bit different things here or there. But one thing I hope that we gain by looking at the prophets, or the few of them in this series, is that there are two huge foundation stones when it comes to what the prophets are warning about. In planning on this series, I thought for a little while, but not too long, about giving you the exact same sermon 10 weeks in a row. Because you know, as pastors, you think, what can I say? What, you know, what would they remember? And I thought, well, they would sure remember that. But then I thought, well, you know, it might get a little boring, and that's kind of a weird kind of trick. So I'm not going to do that. But I could. There is a unity among all of those different prophets that sometimes I think we miss because they're all different in their little different books and we're not sure what prophet was running around with what prophet or what king. But if there are two things that you remember that the prophets come to warn warn about, it's these two. They warn about idolatry and they warn about abusing others. Every single one of them. 
and Micah's no different this morning. And in fact, when I phrase it, stop idolatry, stop abusing others as their main message, even that is a bit redundant. I could just say idolatry, because really, abuse of others is a form of idolatry. You say, what do you mean? When we abuse others, when we take advantage of the weak or the poor or those that we can take advantage of, when we do that, it's almost always, if not always, I was trying to think of an exception this morning, I can't find one. When we abuse others, it's usually, if not always, for, well, it makes us feel better or it's, it's for self-gain or benefit when we lean on and abuse others. And as soon as we cross that line, to doing things and living life for self. We're bowing down to really that most infamous of idols. She comes under many names, pride, self, I, me, mine. My favorite name for that idol that we need to watch out for today every bit as much as Israel had to watch out for the Baals is the idol of ego. I like that because it's Latin, so it covers the Roman gods. And ego in Greek also means I. It's that idol of ego. But I mention the abuse of others because by far, by far, even more than Baal, the idol worship that God mentions and references is that idol of self, self, as it lives itself out in his people abusing others. So if you want a summary bumper sticker of what the entire Old Testament, entire prophetic warning is all about, and I would say New Testament too, it's about no idolatry and don't abuse others. What's Micah's take into that? How is he a little different from Amos and Jose and the others? I chose one verse in particular in Micah that I want to focus in on on the time that we have left this morning. It's one of those verses I'll bet when I read it, you go, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. But I want to add to perhaps for many of you, I know it was to me as I found this take this week, I want to add to maybe what you already know or already have heard or have understood about this famous verse. He sets up the verse, Micah does, by asking a question. There's a question that leads up to it. And so he asks, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Two verses later, Micah rephrases the same question. He says it this way. And what does the Lord require of you? What does God want? What is he after? And after describing in vivid detail how Israel has broken the covenant how she's destroyed the relationship she had with God through her disobedience of idolatry and abusing others. 
Micah asks, so what does God want for us? And he gives us the answer in that very famous verse. Does it ring familiar to you? What does God want from us, Micah asks? And he says this, to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. That famous Micah triad, act justly, or more literally, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what he wants. Now, what Israel, in my opinion, would have clearly heard when they first heard Micah say those things in Micah's day, but what might not be immediately obvious to us today from just reading the verse in English is that those first two parts, to do justice and to love mercy, that's covenant talk. That's official Torah, scriptural, covenant talk. Covenant is that relationship between God and his people. Those are legal buzzwords in Hebrew that the English is doing its best to translate. That first term, to do justice, is the word mispat in Hebrew. Say mispat. And mispat When you do a word study of that word, yeah, in English, a a nice tight translation that gives us this little pithy verse that we can uh, memorize well and praise God for that. But when they try to compact mispot into two words, they miss a key portion of mispot in Hebrew. Mispot in Hebrew, you will always find, sure, it means justice, But if you want to elaborate on that justice, it means make sure, if you are doing mispot, to mispot is to make sure that your neighbors, others, are well provided for. That's mispot. Provide for others could have been an English translation of mispot. Second, That second part, to love mercy. Translators agonize over the Hebrew word behind what's translated to love mercy. Sometimes it's to love kindness. Every translation has a different sort of take on it. The Hebrew word behind it, you see it on the screen, is chesed. Say chesed. It's a very difficult word because it's more than a word. Again, it's a concept to, come into, uh, to carry that into English. Love, mercy, it's a good brief try, but hesed, hesed really has its finger at the kind of love or the love that exists between God and his people. Hesed is the covenantal term in one Hebrew word that describes God's people's relationship to God. Hesed. 
And see, when we read to love justice and to love mercy, we think maybe it's kind of opposite. What does it really have to do with God? I think to the original Israelite listener, when they heard hesed, love mercy, they heard that nearly as, ah, my relationship, my loving, merciful father relationship to me with God. Does that make sense? Does it make sense to anyone? Okay. If you think of, see, it doesn't say, it doesn't say uh, 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 be merciful, does it? It says to love mercy itself. And the example of mercy in the Israelite mind, of course, and it should be in ours too, is the ultimate example of mercy from the God who is mercy, the mercy he shows us. That's what's in chesed. It has its finger pointing to the relationship that we have with God. Now, if that's a correct look at mispat and chesed, or at least if it's an echo, as I believe it is, well now, isn't that interesting? Why? Mispat, make sure your neighbor has what she needs. Hesed, be steadfast in loving your God and your relationship with your God. Mispat, be aware of others. Hesed, stay true and faithful in your relationship with God. Kind of kind of reminds me of something around here. Love God and love others, isn't it? Love mercy, do justice. Now who does that sound like in the New Testament? It's the right answer for every Bible question. Jesus, good. Isn't that something, the first two components that Micah gives in answer to the question, what does God want from us? We have echoes, at least, of what Jesus would later call the greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love God and love others. Mispat, do justice, that is, love others. And chesed, love mercy, that is, love God. Isn't that really cool? And in Micah, it's like double layered or triple layered. It's just it's like peeling those onions. Right? It's always the metaphor. You peel an onion. Why? Because as soon as you peel the onion, what do you have next? You have more onion. But you got layers and layers and layers and layers of onion. And so in Micah, it's layered like a sort of onion. Because this mispat chesed, love God, love others, is all wrapped up and layered into the context of Micah's warning against what? No idolatry and no abuse, or in other words, his warning against idolatry, not loving God, and his warning against abuse, not loving others. Isn't the Bible so cool? (laughs) And there that message is. Way back here in the Old Testament, go figure. Love God 
and love others is what God wanted from Israel as well as from us. I guess Jesus was right after all when he said that all the law and the prophets hang from those two commands. It's no different for Israel as it was for us. When you read the rest of Micah 6, I can't take time to do it with you this morning because I want to get to something else. Please take time to read the rest of Micah 6 and you'll find between those two rephrasings of the question of what does God want from us, he includes in there all the sacrifices that he required of Israel as possible answers. Does he want all these sacrifices? Does he want 10,000 rams? Does he want, does he want, does he want, does he want? And Micah's way of saying, no, that's not really what he wants. Now some commentators have pointed to Micah being where God said, all right, um, um, don't do sacrifices anymore. You know, just love God and love others. I, 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 don't disagree, I, I don't agree with that. I disagree with that interpretation. I think instead what Micah is saying, yeah, God told you to do sacrifices. He told you to do those things, but you've missed it because the sacrifices are not the ends. They're a means. A means to what? Doing justice and loving mercy. To help remind them, when you bring a sacrifice, whether in their day it's the sacrifice of a cow, or whether in our day it's the sacrifice of praise. When you bring stuff and you give it in community, it's to help us, remind us to take care of the others and not bow down to the idol of ego. And it's to remind us to stay close to God in humility. That's the point. Brief application today. We don't, we're not going to be sacrificing a, a cow, a goat, a pigeon, a sheep, or a dove this morning. I assure you. But you all came and you, bring your, you brought your sacrifice today, whether it's a sacrifice of praise, whether it's something you put in a plate, whether it's during the week and different things that you do and volunteering your time and, and, and praying for people and loving people. And you are bringing sacrifices today. It, it's what the cows look like today. And the message for us today in Micah is identical to what it is in Israel. Be careful that those religious things don't become the ends. That there's not a relationship, a covenantal relationship, a deep transforming heart change that is focusing on others in acting justice, and is focusing on God in loving mercy. Because without that, all of those wonderful things that we do, do, do as part of being church people are absolutely 
worthless. And that brings us to that third component of Micah's famous triad here. The last one about what God wants from us. The one that talks about humble walking. And we might say, wait a minute, there's more? I thought the love God, love others were the greatest and second greatest commandment. Doesn't that cover it all? There's more? The answer is yes and no. That third piece, one way to look at that third piece is it helps describe what it's like loving God and loving others or what we're to be like or how it is that we love God and love others. Let me give you another metaphor. In order for us to walk, we need something to walk on. Let's call it a path. In the Bible, it's called a way. We need a path or a way to walk on. In the Bible, that metaphor for that path or that way or that road is the path of life, of living, of living our everyday lives. So walking on a path in the Bible is living your daily lives. And the path that we're to walk on, the path that we're to live, is the path of mispat and chesed. That's our path. Love others, love God. Isn't it fascinating that Micah and God through Micah puts the love others first? I could preach for several weeks on that. He puts it first. But that's the path, the life journey as followers of God that we are on, the path of justice and mercy. That's the path. But then that can open up two questions that this third component answers. One question, how do we walk on the path of justice and mercy? And With whom do we walk? With whom must we walk through our lives of justice and mercy, mispat and chesed? And so comes the third piece of Micah's famous triad. The question of how to walk is answered here in a word. Humbly. Where to walk? Humbly. You say, well, I kind of know what humble means, but... Does it carry with it a sense of, you know, fearful groveling? No. What does it mean to walk humbly, biblically? Well, it's the opposite of walking proudly. Maybe that's one way we can get at its meaning. Let's look at its opposite. Now, have you ever seen someone walk proudly? I was tempted at the 8 o'clock service. I'm tempted again to ask you all to get up and walk proudly, but it'll take 15 minutes for you to get back to your seat. How does someone walk proudly? Chins up, chest is out. I don't know, what look have I got in my face? 
smirk, a sneer. It's really easy to walk proudly in my new cowboy boots. I should have worn them. So they got that heel. And it's like, almost sounds like a horse. There's a great English word that describes walking proudly. It's that English word strut. Walking proudly, we strut. Walking humbly means we don't strut. If you want to look in the Bible for some great examples of some strutters, Proverbs 30 rather sarcastically um, gives us pictures of strutters. Proverbs 30, I think, beginning in verse 28, talks about a lion. You ever see one of the, you know, the big king of the jungle? They just like own the place, right? Next picture they give us is a rooster, right? The rooster gets that head thing going. Then the next picture, I think, is a goat. You all probably don't have a lot of experiences with goats, but apparently they strut too. And the last one is a king. A king struts. Prideful strutters rather than humble walkers. And as God's people, we're told to walk humbly. Don't strut. Let me try to give some context for that. In reading up for the message this morning, two separate biblical word studies suggested that that phrase, walk humbly in biblical context, as opposed to strutting, is, get this, humble walking is paying attention to others as we walk and as we live to recognize that on this path of life, there are others on the path with us. And walking humbly is more than just noticing them there on the path. It means to be in relation with them and with reference and deference to them on the way. Even my own identification of who I am as a person is defined by how I react and interact to others. So focused on others is my walk. When you're focusing on others, you can't strut because you'll bang into something. Walking humbly, there it is again, is focusing on others. Strutter doesn't ever acknowledge anyone else. Too busy strutting to even notice, perhaps, unless it's someone to get out of the way. And so when Micah says, walk humbly, in the immediate context of mispot, do justice, love others, he answers the question of how to walk by calling attention to the others who walk with us on the path of life. Because God indeed requires us to walk with others, humbly, paying attention to those on the path of life with us. 
So now the second question. If we walk the path of justice and mercy humbly, acknowledging others, who will be our companion along the way? Micah answers the question. With your God. He is the constant companion of the humble walker. But only the humble walker. Because the strutter has no time for companions. But the humble walker, the one with her eyes on the others on the path of justice and mercy, she has as her immediate companion none other than the living God. And there's Hesed. And so when Israel took her eyes off others, stopped doing justice, started abusing them, bowed down to that idol of ego, she began to strut. And when she struts, remember, strutters have no time for a companion. So it's all about I, me, my. When she struts, she effectively ditched the companion that she once had on her path and the companion that she desperately needed with her. She lost that willing companionship of the living God. And what made it worse was that as Israel was strutting along, not paying attention to the others, she thought God was still with her on the path. Micah 3.11 says it this way, Israel's leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. And despite all of that sin, all of that strutting, Micah tells us this, yet they lean upon the Lord and say, well, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. And through Micah, God catches his people and he screams to his people whom he loves, hey, where did you go? Why have you ditched me? I can't be with you when you strut. Stop strutting. Start paying attention to others. If you don't, I can't be with you. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Drive out demons? Perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, Jesus said, I never knew you. How about today? Maybe we can begin with 
talking about our consumer society's commitment to strutting autonomy. It's idealized, the individual. Football's about to happen, so athletics are on my mind. And athletes who, who must not only win, but must make gestures of triumph in dismantling their opponent. And let's point it even closer to home. Does some of that begin culturally, even in our own families and when, with our own children, where every little achievement must be treated as some sort of awesome accomplishment? I want to be careful here. Encourage your kids, praise your kids. But can we take it too far or can we take it with a wrong emphasis? I think schools now, pretty much, there's a graduation ceremony for every grade, K through 12, isn't there? Where does that come from? Oh, maybe from a good spot. Let's, let's honor little Johnny and let's honor little Lisa. Okay. But as a whole, is it possible that that can begin shaping our kids to, to, to need and feed off of praise for what they've done. Are we creating little narcissists that grow up to be big narcissists like me? And I don't know, I'm still wrestling with that because I want to praise and encourage kids, but can we do it in a way that encourages them to walk humbly with their God? Way to go, Johnny! That's the best picture of a, a snowman on the refrigerator I've ever seen in my life. Wow, what a great picture. You know, a little. Can we add or can we include somehow? Isn't it amazing that God's ability to draw is something He shared with you and is partnering with, with you? Oh, praise God! The Bible presents an alternate path to one I feel sometimes is abundant in American Western culture, a different form of life that doesn't depend on or isn't seemingly driven by self-enhancement and congratulations. The biblical picture is it presents as a life path a self-abandoning companionship. A humble walk that focuses on others. Oh, let's reinforce that however we can in our kids and in us. So help us, God. God has showed us what is good and what is required of us. To act justly. Are our neighbors well befriended for? To love mercy. Are we steadfast and loyal in our relationship humbly before the God of mercy? To walk humbly focusing on others in the path of justice and mercy with us and to do it with our God who when we focus on others in justice and mercy and humility is right there with us in that chesed relationship he craves. Oh, may it be so of us. Let's pray.
And then I've invited the worship team back up to close us um, in a song this morning. Father in heaven, it is so easy for us to get stuck on self. Please, Father, teach us. Teach us that what you want from us is this focus on others in relationship with you. Out of our love for you, we focus on others. And when we focus on others, that our walk then is humble. And it's a walk that you can come join us in. As together with you, we witness to those others just how loving you are and how much you indeed are love. Father, help us in how we live our lives, in the words that we use even with our children and with each other. Help us, Father, to always, always, always exalt your name and to recognize that even the most eloquent of our words are your words. Help us, Father, to live with the reality of trading our words for yours in exalting you and you alone and not, however subtly and insidiously, exalting me. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name, even as we turn now and focus on exalting you in music and in prayer. In his name, amen. Receive God's benediction, these words from the Apostle Paul. If there was anyone that was entitled to strut, it was Jesus, because he's God. But instead of strutting, Paul tells us about Jesus, and he tells us where to be like him. Paul writes, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Paul says, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. It's walking the path language. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, in humility. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on down to the gathering place if you'd like to meet the pastors and staff. Those of you who have kids, if you'd get them first so the ladies downstairs can join us. And then see you tonight at 5 o'clock for Sunday Night Connection. We'll have a great time. God bless you all.